Hey, happy Independence Day. It's uh, July 4th, and we're talking about sex. Thanks, Pastor Dan, for assigning me uh, this passage. It's, it's actually, uh, we've been working our way through 1 Thessalonians, and, and this is where we landed this week. Uh, probably not the fireworks that you had in mind today, but uh, I thought we'd have a little fun to start off. It is a holiday, so... Uh, I want to play a little bit of Bible verse or love song. Bible verse or love song. So I'm going to read uh, a statement and you decide, well, is that in the Bible or is that from a love song? So here we go. Let's see how you do. All night long on my bed, I look for the one my heart loves. Bible or love song? That is, in fact, Bible. Let's try this one. Take me to your heart. For it's there that I belong and will never part. That is actually a song, uh, Love Me Tender by Elvis Presley. You should have known that, right? Uh, here's another one. I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go. That's Bible. Many waters can't quench love. Rivers can't wash it away. That's also Bible. Through the clouds I see love shine. It keeps me warm as life grows colder. That is a love song by Foreigner. I want, I want to know what love is, right? Um, here's another one, just a few more. You have captured my heart. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. That's Bible. Try this one. I'd walk through fire for you. Just let me adore you. That's a love song by Harry Styles called Adore. Last one, kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. Well, that may tip it off a little bit. That's, that's Bible. Uh, fun little exercise, but here, here's what I want us to take from this. Sometimes the world thinks that followers of Jesus are, are just a bunch of killjoys or squares, but we find in the very word of God God promotes intimacy and sex in its proper context. Uh, all of these Bible quotes were taken from uh, the Song of Songs, uh, a poem by King Solomon who wrote to exalt the virtues of love between a husband and a wife. Marriage and sex are God's design and creation. Don't forget that. And it's not something we should feel uncomfortable talking about. Uh, it's interesting that, that Solomon's poem combats two extremes when thinking about sexual intimacy. One is asceticism. I know that, that's kind of a big word. It just means the denial of all pleasure. Uh, Solomon is combating that. He's also combating this word hedonism, which is the pursuit of only pleasure. And Solomon is combating that as well. Instead, the marriage described in the Song of Songs is full of pleasure in the context of care and selflessness and commitment. And I think that's why Paul comes, so, comes down so hard on, on sexual purity in this passage. Uh, we're in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. You're, you'll want to turn there in your Bible or device. Uh, it will be here on, on the screen. Uh, take some notes. You're going to want to write some things down today. Uh, this brand new church is thriving. Paul had only been there a few weeks with them before having to escape in the night, but their story is, is turning the world upside down. It's, 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 <clears throat> they turned to the living God, and it was making such a huge impact in the regions all around them. 
And while opposition of the gospel grows and Satan continues to to try to hinder the ministry and message of Jesus, Paul keeps encouraging these young believers to keep working in the waiting, to stand firm in their faith, allowing their love for God to uh, to grow deeper, their love for one another to grow deeper. He's saying there's more work to be done in the waiting. And it's in this context of these deep and and widening relationships that that Paul begins a new section of letter, which I think boils down to answering one basic question. Who am I living for? Who am I living for? In other words, he's challenging them, he's encouraging them. You've turned from idols and the false gods of your culture now, who, you're going, who are you going to turn to? Who are you going to live your life for? You see, they had turned to God and are serving the living and true God, and yet uh, there's some things they still needed to tend to. They were living in the midst of a pagan culture, and, and the temptation was to keep living in the ways that they lived and then you know, add God into the mix. But Paul's instructing them with with repentance comes transformation. Transformation, a transformation that changes our appetites and our purposes from from self-gratification to selflessness. You see, I believe the the crux of this part of Paul's letters is being able to answer, who am I ultimately serving? Who is my ultimate authority? Who am I seeking to please? It's who am I living for is a question that we need to ask every day. We have a choice. Am I, am I living for God or am I living for myself? Am I living for eternal things or am I just simply living for the here and now? You see, there's, there's several things that affect what we live for. And, and that's where Paul starts us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 1, it says, as for other matters, or, or finally, um, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the name, in, in the name of the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here's our first point. We live for what we allow to influence us. We live for what we allow to influence us. What is influencing you today? In this case, Paul's saying, as as we instructed you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, keep living in order to please God more and more. He's reminding them of, of what he's already taught them. He uses this word instruction, which was a term used for a military commander giving orders to those under his authority. Well, I think most of us know from experience when a commander or a teacher or a coach speaks, it's not a suggestion. It's not a hint. It's not a recommendation. It's not an optional activity. It's a mandate. You see, earlier Paul described them them as accepting their words, not just as the words of men, but as it actually is the word of God. These instructions came with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's challenging, and this this is how you ought to live if you're truly a follower of Jesus. It's not an option. These these aren't things only super-Christians do. It's how anyone who claims to follow Christ should live. 
It's not on the screen, but I encourage you, write this down. What it means is that God's interests become our primary ambitions. God's interests become my primary ambitions. In other words, I'm no longer living to please myself. I'm living to please God. God's truth, God's commands, God's priorities, God's purposes, God's interests are what influence my every decision. It's not about me. It's not about what I want unless what I want aligns with God's heart. And I do this because I believe the one in authority loves me most and knows what's best. So Paul's pointing us to our relationships with God and a desire to please him. You see, for those, those of us who are married, uh, this is similar to what we committed to ourselves. But we're no longer living for ourselves. We're living to please and serve our spouse. In a healthy, thriving marriage, the question is asked multiple times during a day, how can I put a smile on my spouse's face? How do I live to please them? How do I serve them? How do I I need to put their needs above my own? How can I help? You see, nine times out of ten, if we're not asking these types of questions in our relationships, our relationships are probably struggling. Here, Here Paul's encouraging us to ask the same question in relation to our relationship with God. Am I living to please him? Am I, am I living to put a smile on God's face? Well, how do we do that? Paul doesn't keep us wondering. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. In other words, we live for what we're devoted to. We live for what we're devoted to. Who are you devoted to? Let's take this verse and phrase, uh, and a, a verse and a phrase at a time. It says, it is God's will. Well, sometimes that trips us up because many times we make God's will something that's mysterious and, and elusive for us as followers of Jesus. We wonder what he wants us to do and where he wants us to live when the reality is God's more concerned with who we are and who we're becoming because God is committed to our transformation. When it comes to being in the will of God, the emphasis of the Bible isn't answering every who, what, where, and when, but instead how to live a life that's pleasing to him, aligning our heart with his. Because it's clear, when we know God's will, we must do God's will. Verse 3 spells out God's will will for us very clearly, and it says, It is God's will that what? That you should be sanctified. Be sanctified. This means to to be set apart, to be holy, And, and there's two parts to this. On the one hand, it means that we're being set apart from something, And on the other hand, we've been set apart to something. Followers of Jesus have been set apart from sin, becoming less and less like the world that they're living in, the the fallen world that they're living in, and set apart to holy living, becoming more and more like Jesus, from sin into holy living. Growing up, sometimes... uh, 
Sometimes after supper, before bed, we, we would get a snack as kids. We, we called it a bedtime party. It's uh, actually been a, a little bit of a habit that's hard to break. But I remember a lot of times, Friday nights, Saturday nights, my dad would make a huge bowl of popcorn. And he always chose one particular bowl. It's the biggest bowl in the house, and he would fill it to overflowing with popcorn. However, because it was the biggest bowl in the house, when one of us would start feeling stomach sick, guess what bowl mom and dad would pull out to put on the side of our bed in case we got sick during the night? Yeah, that big bowl. It served a dual purpose. It was popcorn bowl. It was throw-up bowl. (laughs) Thing is, none of us really thought much about it until uh, Ryan lived with us for a little bit when he was in high school. And and for some reason, he thought it was really gross. So we, we ended up buying a new popcorn bowl, one that was set apart for a specific use. <laughs> Aren't you thankful? Yes, I am too. Now, that's kind of a colorful illustration. God doesn't want, it, want us mixing up a throwing bowl with popcorn bowl. He doesn't want us mixing the gross with the pure. You see, we're not to mix our worldly and selfish appetites with a life that is lived to please God. God wants us to live set apart. He wants us to live different than the world around us. He wants us to live in purity and and holiness, reflecting Jesus, living to make Jesus make sense. In other words, we have to answer the question, what am I turning from and devoting myself to? Am I devoting myself to to whatever pleasure and gain I I can get in this world? Am I devoting myself to self? Or am I devoted to what God wants for my life? Being sanctified is, is a continuing work of God in the life of the follower of Jesus. God's desire is that we be sanctified, that we be different that we be set apart, and and it describes the process of being made holy. In fact, there's a present and future aspect to this. Sanctification begins when you say yes to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says it this way, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then it continues throughout our Christian life and will be completed when Jesus comes back for us. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, he's going to carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's God's will for us. Every area of our lives should be set apart for God's purpose at, at home, at work, in the privacy of our bedroom. In every area, every place, every thought were to be asking, am I living to do God's will or am I living to do my own will? Am I living to set apart, to be set apart for God's purposes or my own? Am I devoted to my own agendas and desires or am I devoted to God's? I am set apart to and for God because the one who is holy set himself apart to be sin for me so that I can be set apart to his righteousness. Now Paul gets even more specific. He he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified 
that you should avoid sexual immorality. You see, one of the key areas of our lives in which we struggle with this devotion to God or to self is in our sexuality. The truth is, whether you're 15, 18, 40, 85, male or female, single or married, we all need to deal with this area in our lives. And so Paul starts with this command, avoid sexual immorality. Now note, Paul doesn't say avoid sexuality. He says avoid sexual immorality. To avoid means to to keep our distance. Uh, the, The Phillips paraphrase puts it this way, make a clean cut with sexual immorality. Ephesians 5.3 defines this further, but among you there must not even... There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because those, these are improper for God's holy people, his set-apart, sanctified holy people. The phrase sexual immorality comes from a Greek word, porneia, which, from which we get our word pornography. But it's a word that's so much broader than that. It, it encompasses every sexual activity outside the circle of God's will. It includes premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, adultery, every form of pornography. Paul is telling followers of Jesus to avoid, to steer clear of a pornographic lifestyle in the broadest sense of that word. You see, God is very clear and adamant about our sexual purity. I think part of the issue today is that that opportunities and temptations for sexual immorality are, are more accessible than ever. And yet it was even worse in Thessalonica. Because Thessalonica was a seaport town, it meant the sailors and, and merchants who were visiting the city brought with them their desire for sexual gratification. More concerning, the the Greek religions of that day practiced uh, sacred prostitution, which involved uh, hiring a prostitute at at a pagan temple as part of worship. And in many places, it was considered an honor for a woman to serve as a temple prostitute, to give herself in that way. It was also common in that day for men to take several wives and, and to use their slaves for additional sexual gratification. You see, pleasure at any expense was the philosophy of the day. And so given the moral atmosphere, the immoral atmosphere, there must have been enormous pressure on these young Christians to lower their standards, conform to the world around them. You see, it was a throw-up bowl of, of immorality. And God says, it's my will that you set yourselves apart from all this. That, that you devote your lives to God who created your sexuality. Can you imagine? Can you imagine as how the Thessalonian believers stood out in that day when they started abstaining from sexual immorality? Can you imagine what would happen in our society if we lived as God instructed us to live, set apart, devoted to God's ways? See, as we talk about this, I think this is important. Sex is an expression of intimacy. It's not the means to intimacy. It's an expression of intimacy, not the means to intimacy. Healthy relationships get strong, not through sex, but through shared values, shared interests, effective communication. 
You see, a healthy order to relationship building is to start with communication and, and understanding one another, building a foundation on, on shared values, shared interests, commitment, because we need to be known and we need to know. And when, when, we, when we've built this foundation, it creates a foundation for a healthy context for marriage. And then it's in the context and the safety and security of the marriage commitment that true intimacy happens. The problem in, in our culture today, we've reordered these steps. You see, couples hook up and become sexually active outside the context of a marriage commitment. And as a result, they decide to get married, but because they don't really, they don't really know one another, they haven't built a foundation of shared values. When conflict comes, there's, there's no context for conflict resolution, and sex isn't strong enough to sustain the relationship. That's why so many, so many marriages struggle and fail today. And see, when we try to change God's order, we start doing things outside of their proper context. You see, the Bible sets the standard for sexuality for all people in all times, and it doesn't budge. That's why Paul's appealing to these new followers of Jesus, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, walk in such a way that will please God. So, so what or who is your authority? By what standard do you gauge whether your sexual desires are, are, are pleasing to God or not? See, too many times it's the locker room or the garage or the water cooler. But let me repeat what Paul said. You're, you're doing well. You're growing in God's grace. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. But have you brought your sexuality? Have you brought your desires, your thoughts, your character, your conduct in, in private under the authority of the Lord Jesus? Who are you living for? Who are you allowing to, to influence you? To whom are you devoted? Well, fortunately, Paul doesn't leave us there with a simple command. Verses 4 and 5 give us the how, and verses 7 through 8 give us the why. Here's how we can avoid sexual immorality and be sanctified to please God. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. How can we be set apart to God? Control your own body, Paul's saying. Control your own body. We're to avoid immorality and learn to do something good. The word body here is, is a word vessel, signifying something fragile that, that's in need of, of a tender care. And so we really have two choices. We can learn to control our bodies, or we can allow our sexuality to control and define us. You see, when we simply let our urges and, and desires have control, we give in to whatever, whatever feels right at the moment, and we ignore the consequences. But Paul reminds us elsewhere in Romans 6, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. 
You see, you know what you can handle and, and what you can't, so don't put yourself in, in situations where you lose control. That's why the writer of Proverbs says this, Can a man scoop fire in his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Reminds me of a man who went to the doctor and said, Doctor, I think I broke my, my arm in two places. The doctor looked him in the eye and told him, well, then stop going to those places. You see, we're to control our own vessels, our own bodies. But this can be difficult when we live in a world that, that whispers seductive messages to us every day. You'd be happier if you had more or better sex. Your sexual fulfillment is the most important thing. You can't be a whole person without sex. Sex solves your problems. Our culture says that our sexuality is an appetite to be fulfilled. It's, it's a desire that needs filled. We, we talk about our sex drive and, and our need for sex. Sex is a, a force. It's a right. Sexuality is, is absolutely core to who we are and can't be denied. Our culture teaches that we're possessed by our own sexuality. But we don't have to live that way. There's a better way to live. This instruction to control my body puts me in charge of my sexuality. It, it is a good gift that God has given me to enjoy. It doesn't control me. I control it in a way that's set apart to God. But Paul knows it's not enough to, to just tell us what not to do. It's not enough to say, well, just stop it. <laughs> I mean, I remember as a teenager growing up in, in youth group and church, I heard a lot of talks about boundaries and barriers and what not to do. The problem is it's, it's not just about not doing certain things. It's an attitude out of the heart that's devoted to pleasing God. Telling others what not to do only goes so far because we also need to know what's healthy and proper in our relationships. How do I enjoy sex within a, within a monogamous, heterosexual marriage? What, if, what do I do if I'm not married? What, if I, what do I do if I'm married but sex causes more conflict than intimacy? I think Paul begins to address this in part when he says in verse 4 and 5, each of you should, should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. Well, here's a positive way of saying that. Act like who you are. Act like who you are. This week in Bible camp, uh, the whole month of, of July and Power Kids are talking about confidence. I, I like how they define it. The kids learned it this week. Confidence is learning to see yourself the way God sees you. Here's what they learned each day. I can have confidence because I'm known. I can have confidence because I belong. I'm forgiven. I can change. I can have confidence to make a difference. You see, confidence is living in a way that reflects who God has made us to be. And yet I think about this. Girls have been conditioned by society to believe that unless they're told they're, they're hot or, or sexy on Twitter or Instagram, that they have little self-worth. 
And so they dress provocatively and engage in, in sensual discussions and actions to, to earn their worth. They, they crave a boy's attention. Sadly, they don't realize all that society is stealing from them. Think about it. Who decided that blondes have more fun and women's, when what a woman's measurement should be? That's probably a bunch of men around a conference table discussing how, how to get Americans to spend more on products they don't need. Is your sexuality and confidence, your worth, really up to the decision of a bunch of advertisers you've never met? Is your mental and emotional health up to them as well? Absolutely not. Don't buy into that. Your value comes from God. Your value comes from from God who says you are so valuable, he sent his son to die for you to reconcile you to himself, to call you into his family as his son, as his daughter. Your identity and worth is found in Jesus alone. Anything else is like building a bridge out of wet cardboard. It doesn't last under the pressures and the situations of this life. Sexuality doesn't have to define me. I am a person made in God's image. My sexuality is not who I am. Sexuality doesn't have to control me. Just because I want to have sex doesn't mean I have to. I can choose which desires to act on. I can choose when to act upon them. I can choose to wait. My sexuality doesn't force me to make certain decisions. Act like who you are. Not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. You see, we shouldn't be surprised when people outside of life in Christ encourage lust and engage in sexual immorality. But here's the thing. We should be surprised when believers act like pagans. The truth is, it gets harder and harder not to be desensitized to passionate lust all around us. And yet someone has said, lust is the craving for salt by a man dying of thirst. It promises everything and delivers nothing. You always have to go back for more. Don't live like a pagan who doesn't know God. Followers of Jesus, we're not who we once were. We're not controlled by lust. We're not controlled by lust, but we're controlled by love, love for God in response to his great love for us. We're different, and we we have to act. We must act like who we are in Christ. You are saved, redeemed, bought with the price of Jesus' life, justified, made right with God, forgiven, regenerated, made new, given new life, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You are loved and adopted into his forever family. You see, it starts with knowing who God really is and finding our satisfaction in him. It starts with realizing who God has created us to be and and who we are in light of the good news of Jesus. The key to defeating sexual temptation is to know God as he really is and devote our lives to living for him. How can we be set apart to God, avoid sexual immorality, Control your own body. Act like who you are. Verse 6, show respect to one another. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
The idea of, of wronging means that we're not to cross the line or, or go out of bounds. We're not to take advantage of someone else for our own fulfillment. You see, sexual sin always hurts somebody. There's no such thing as safe sex outside the context of marriage. They don't make a condom that can protect your heart. So don't steal someone's purity. Don't rob their respect by by marring memories that will be with them for a lifetime. Don't take someone else's wife or husband. Don't cheat your wife by fantasizing of other women. Don't cheat your husband by flirting with other men. Don't take what's not yours. When sex is misused, people get hurt. And, and when, all, when, when all I'm focused on is myself and, and my personal sexual experience, people get hurt. When I let my sexuality possess me, people get hurt. Our goal is to love and protect the people around us. And so that's the how. Now, Paul finishes up by giving us the why. The point is we live for what we're called to. We live for what we're called to. What have you been called to? Beginning at the end of verse 6, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Why should we avoid sexual immorality and be set apart to God? Paul says, God's word says, to, to avoid God's punishment. That's kind of a hard thing to hear. That's a tough, that's a tough verse. Because we know that God will avenge a, a lost person's sin, but we don't normally think about what it means for the follower of Jesus. Remember, Paul's writing to a church here. And while it's true that there's no longer, we're no longer under condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the, the principle of reaping what we sow is true. In Galatians 6, 7, do not be conceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. He gets what he gives. This, was a, this has a future element to it. And so you may think that there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. It feels good. You've not been caught yet. Don't be deceived. God always takes action, and you'll not be able to escape the painful results of sinful choices. It's the law of inevitable consequences. You reap what you sow. Now is the time to set yourself apart from whatever immorality you may be dabbling with and set yourself apart to God. You don't have to live like a fugitive, always looking over your shoulder to see if if your secret sins have caught up to you. Why should we avoid sexual immorality and, and be set apart to God? Not just to avoid punishment, Verse 7 says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You see, what this is saying is that God has called you to a holy life, to be different, to to live like Jesus, and, and to be led by the Holy Spirit. Pastor Dan always says, read the Bible in color. I think this is fascinating. It brings some color to the passage here. This word impure literally means refuse. Uh, It was used of the contents of a grave. 
In other words, God has not called you to a life wearing the decaying cloth of a decomposed body. If you've said yes to Jesus, you've devoted your life to him, you're walking in new life, an eternal life, a purpose-filled life. God is calling us to a life that, that rises above the impurity and refuse of this world. And he longs for us to listen to his instruction and, and live in a way that he's created and purposed us to live. God desires that we devote ourselves to him, to what's eternal, to, to what's good and pure and just and selfless. His desire is that we be influenced by his truth and, and not the cravings of our own selfishness and pride. And in all of this, and, and, and lean into this, hear, hear me in this. He longs to forgive. He longs to forgive. Because I know some of us carry deep guilt in these areas. You carry a, a shame for decisions made in the moment that have made you feel desperate and hopeless. But here's what you need to hear. Nothing you have ever done is so bad that it can't be covered by Jesus' death on the cross. Nothing. Reminds me of a story uh, Pastor Matt Chandler tells about a woman that he met. She was in her late 20s, a uh, single mother. She didn't know who the dad was. She was having an affair with a married man. And he had many conversations with her. And, and finally, he invited her to church, and, and she, she agreed to come to church with him and some of his friends. And, and so that particular Sunday, they were all excited she was there. And the pastor got up and said, today we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> yeah, uh-oh. The pastor pulled out a rose, beautiful rose, smelled it described its beauty and its intricacies. And then, and then he asked people in the crowd to pass it around the auditorium, to smell it, to touch it, to, to pass it on. And after preaching a very condemning message on sexual immorality, he, he said, hey, I, I want the rose back. As it made its way back to the front and as he held it up, it became very apparent that it had been handled by most of the people in that large auditorium. The stem was broken some of the petals were missing, starting to, to fall off. And he, and he made much of its wrecked condition, and he compared it to a person who had given themselves away sexually. And then he ended with these alarming words. He said, who would want this? Yeah. My heart breaks. And I agree with Matt Chandler as he heard these words and he, he felt the guilt and the desperation of the hopelessness of the woman sitting next to him. He knew this isn't the message of Jesus. And he felt like yelling out, Jesus wants the rose. Who, who would want this? Jesus would want this. He still wants you. He loves you. You see, we're all broken in different ways today, but the good news is Jesus wants the rose. If you're carrying a load of guilt and shame with you today, Jesus wants the rose. He wants you to come, be forgiven, experience his love. Come to Jesus in your brokenness. He's willing and eager to bring restoration to your life. Don't run away in shame. 
Use your brokenness to drive, to drive you to him, to, to depend on him. Start today by confessing your sin, going to Jesus, asking his forgiveness, choosing to live out your calling to live a holy life. Choose who you're living for. You see, there's hope and healing. Jesus died on the cross. He took our sin upon himself. He was raised from the dead to express his victory over that sin and death. And when we place our faith in Christ, we can find forgiveness. That guilt and shame can be, can be removed from us as we enter into a right relationship with God because it's not about what you've done. It's about who Christ can make you. There is healing. There is hope. You see, regardless what they had done, Jesus didn't condemn the people that he met. But neither did he ignore their sin. He acknowledged it and lovingly told them, hey, turn from sin and turn to me, turn to him. You see, Jesus loves people and he gives them a vision of who they can be. So today isn't just a a command to avoid sexual immorality. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to devote your life to living for God, set apart to God. It's about deepening a relationship with a God who created you and wants to see you live life as he purposed and he created you to live. Who will you live for? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you enter into our brokenness. Lord, that you relieve the guilt and shame and bring us to yourself. Allow us to be at peace with you and call us your children. Father, I thank you. I pray that in our brokenness, the light within us, Christ within us, would shine out that much more brightly to the people around us. Lord, help us to be set apart to you. Lord, where we're so pulled in so many different directions. Lord, help us to set ourselves apart to you. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that in Jesus there is hope, that he wants the rose. He wants our brokenness. Father, help us to live our lives for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.